1: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
0: A quick heads up. This episode contains sensitive material that deals with racism, violence, and homophobia. I'm Deborah Jian Lee, and this is Kaleidoscope. Today, I'm bringing you a special experimental episode. You've been tuning in for weeks, listening to me interview various people about their faith, identity, and social engagement, but I haven't told you much about myself or what led me to start this podcast. So in today's episode, I pull the curtain back. First, let me back it up a bit and start the story on the courts. I'm in seventh grade and it's recess. I see a group of kids playing knockout and I join them. Now I'm pretty decent at basketball. I practice on my driveway every day, no big deal. And at first I don't notice who is in the game. And then I see Neil. Neil is that school bully who delights in making me feel excluded and super small. He always greets me with an insult And it's particularly hurtful because I don't understand why he hates me and I never know how to respond. So back to Knockout. I'm killing it, but Neil keeps saying things like, you suck, girls suck at basketball. And I'm thinking, man, that's ignorant. I gotta win. So one by one, kids get knocked out of the game and then it's just me and Neil. recess ends, the other kids head inside, but one of Neil's friends lingers to cheer him on. It's down to the last shot, and the pressure is on. But I tell myself, you got this, you're gonna make it, it's gonna feel amazing, and so, we shoot. And his misses. Mine swoosh. I am Beaming, dare I say, gloating. But only for a few seconds, because a moment later, Neil calls his friend over and says, grab her. I am totally caught off guard. The friend holds my arms behind my back, so I can't protect my body. I writhe, I scream, stop. But his friend is really strong. I can't get free. And then... Neil starts slamming basketballs into my chest. He slams one ball after the other into my tiny body and he's shouting something. He's shouting, chink. Neil takes one last shot and the ball knocks the wind out of me. My eyes bulge. I stop breathing and Neil's friend throws me to the blacktop and the two run away. And in that moment, it becomes crystal clear why he thinks so little of me. And being young and impressionable, I internalize this. I feel worthless and I feel hate well up inside me. But it's not hate for Neil, it's hate for myself. I hate being Chinese. Looking back, I had no idea how pivotal this moment would be for me. I didn't know that basketball court bullying would lead me on this wild journey as I sought an antidote for my self-hatred. It would lead me on a quest to understand my identity, my faith, and what I found would not only heal my broken heart, but later, it would break it again. And it completely reshaped my destiny. Okay, that's a little dramatic, Uh, and I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me explain how it all went down. Early on, I lost my native Cantonese tongue. So at home, I exclusively spoke English. My parents, on the other hand, spoke Cantonese and Mandarin to each other. They're immigrants from Hong Kong via Taiwan. So my childhood bedroom became this sacred place where I could explore my American identity. My walls became shrines to celebrities like... Ella Fitzgerald, Keanu Reeves, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Claire Danes. But between you and me, I realistically had five to eight photos of just Leo. That's kind of embarrassing to admit. (laughs) Like most kids who code switch between cultures, I felt like I didn't belong anywhere. I toggled between home and my mostly white suburb. But then I found a place. Youth group for us was a place where we could really feel like we belonged. This is Waylon. Waylon and I became besties through a youth group at a Chinese immigrant church. Our youth group friends were like first generation born in the United States. At school, I don't know how nerdy I actually was, but I was just the wallflower nerd because I was Asian. But at youth group, all that awkwardness and nerdiness went away because... They were all different kinds of Chinese-American people. Like, it wasn't like we were one brand or one expression. Yeah, like at youth group, I felt like I could be funny and maybe take some risks, you know, in terms of letting my personality shine. Yeah, it's like we were flirty, we were cool, we loved each other, we fought, there was drama. It was like the whole spectrum of being a teenager was suddenly available to us. So it was in this space that I started to accept myself. It helped that I was in a community where I felt unconditionally loved and was learning about a belief system that said everyone was included. Before long, I get baptized on the church stage and start leading Bible studies. Eventually, I left youth group when I went off to college on quad day, you know, that day when freshmen sign up for like all the clubs. (laughs) I went booth to booth looking for a Christian club that could replace youth group. I found InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. It was different, mostly white with a sprinkle of ethnic diversity, but still, I loved it. There was this one year when I became obsessed with playing the djembe. It's a beautiful drum from West Africa. I didn't think I would ever own one, but then one night my friends surprised me. Now, it wasn't my birthday or anything, but they took me out and then brought me back to my dorm room. When I opened the door, about 20 of my university friends were jammed in there. They were sitting on bunk beds, on desks, on the floor. Even though they were all college students who weren't making any money, they had found a way to all chip in and buy me a jimbe. I cried because that kind of love is just overwhelming. I built my life around this group. I saw them every day of the week. Lunch, dinner, Bible study, morning prayer meetings, church on Sundays, large group on Fridays, dance parties, late night talks, camping, retreats. We did everything together. I know it sounds like a cult and it was all-consuming, but I loved it. I wanted to spend all of my time with people that I had come to love like family. So I took my devotion to this group to the next level. My senior year, I became the group's most visible leader. Every Friday night, we had about 100 students packed into a room, and it was there that I curated and led the service. I brought in guest speakers and delivered mini sermons. I loved this group, but I did notice that some things were off. White friends said things like, ''Debbie, you're not like other Asians. You're one of us.'' Or they expressed relief that our few black members weren't, quote, ''too black.'' A friend told me that she would vote Republican because, quote, ''with Al Gore, babies will die.'' Another called homosexuality a disease. Some guys straight up said that women should submit to men. As a leader, I wanted to change this culture from within. So, in our weekly services, I intentionally presented teachings about dismantling racism and sexism. I stuck with the group because, given all that we believed about Jesus and inclusion and unconditional love, I believed we could change, and that we were better than this. Then, one day, a fellow leader told me that InterVarsity was hosting this event where students would auction tasks to raise money for the group. They called it a servant auction. I know, super problematic name, and it didn't end there. This leader was a close friend, very influential, also white. And she told me that one auction item her Bible study group planned to bid on was another group, all white students, offering to do a supposedly hilarious dance along to an Indian music video, fake turbans and all. I explained why this was offensive and told her to put a stop to it, and I thought she would follow through. A few months later, our group went on a retreat in Upper Peninsula, Michigan. One night, after a lively worship service, several dozen of us were hanging out in the sanctuary. Everything was cool, until... Ah! Yeah. (laughs) I looked up and I saw four white students in front of a big screen displaying the music video. They tore down cloth decorations from the ceiling and wrapped them like turbans around their heads. They danced, they hooted, they made funny faces, and other students watched. They were laughing and taking pictures. I turned my head and I saw my friend John inner varsity staff worker and the only person in the room of Indian descent. Typically he's a warm teddy bear of a man, but in that moment his face had hardened. He looked simultaneously angry, heartbroken, and disappointed. I ran up to him and bumbled out an apology. He told me he was pissed and I didn't want to watch this mess and didn't know how to fix it, So I ran to the bathroom in tears. Eventually, two other staff workers stopped the video and spoke to our entire group. Some students seemed contrite, but others were confused and, like, really defensive. They said things like, why are you shaming us? We're just trying to have fun. Or we didn't intend to be offensive. This moment caused a domino effect of people of color, myself included, launching, anti-racism initiatives in the group and for a while it became a central focus of our ministry but it led to so much backlash it made me realize that even as the group's most visible leader I didn't truly have a voice among my peers I only had influence when I was making them happy and upholding the status quo But once I spoke honestly about how racism had hurt me and my fellow students of color, white students felt uncomfortable and any influence I had disappeared. It didn't matter how much time and energy I had invested. Once I questioned the system, I was no longer useful to the system. By the time graduation rolled around, I vowed to get away and find something totally different. All right, we're going to take a brief break, but stick around. Because when we come back, I'm going to take you church shopping.
1: Hold up. What was that? Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash achieve today. I keep thinking you'll come on back to
0: me. Welcome back to Kaleidoscope. All right, when we last spoke, I just left college brokenhearted and was ready to leave evangelical culture. But I was still a Christian, longing for a church home. So, naturally, I went church shopping. There was a mega church with a laser light show during worship. Another time, a friend took me to his rural white congregation that met in a trailer. I also checked out a storefront black church, many multi-ethnic churches, a hippie commune, and even one of those sexy churches where everyone's super cute and edgy. And then there was the wildest church service I have ever attended. They had a reenactment of the crucifixion that went full-on horror movie. I'm talking chaos with piercing screams and fake blood spraying from the hands and feet of Jesus. I feel like I've seen it all. The problem was, as diverse as these churches seemed, They all led back to conservative evangelical ideology. I didn't realize how far this movement's reach was. Even if churches marketed themselves as different, I'd eventually find out that certain people had to leave parts of themselves at the door. I remember this one time I found this multi ethnic church with a gospel choir that made my soul quake. I loved this church. It was welcoming, diverse in age, ethnicity, economics. There was no majority group. And so I invited a friend to join me. Let me set the scene. We're sitting in the balcony and the choir just finished. We're all feeling Holy Spirit happy. But when the pastor gets on stage, he starts talking about how he once hated gay people so much that he wanted to punch his gay cousin. My stomach turns upside down. Eventually he concludes by saying he now loves gay people and wants to help gay men become quote, real men. (sighs) My friend shoots me this look like, what the hell, what are we doing here? And I just shrivel in my seat. So I go to another church, the sexy one with the hipsters, thinking this will be progressive. Hipsters, right? But then the pastor gives this really weird sermon after a major national tragedy. At this afternoon hour, at least 30 people believed to be killed on the campus of Virginia Tech University, that's in- So this just happened and we're all in shock. As hoped for, our pastor addresses the shooting. But he explains that this massacre is the result of strict Asian parenting. You know that side eye emoji? That's me. I want to see if anyone else is as confused. But everyone is just nodding along with these somber looks on their faces like, Yeah, yeah, good lesson. I can't let this slide. So I asked my pastor out to coffee thinking, We just need to hash this out in person. We sit down at this outdoor cafe, and we're sipping our drinks. I calmly explain how his sermon perpetuates this harmful stereotype of the threatening foreigner, and how society never blames an entire community for the act of one person when that one person is white. I want an apology. But instead, he tells me that another Asian American said his sermon was spot on. Side note, getting a person of color to rubber stamp your racism does not make it okay. I tell him that I'm disappointed, and I want our mostly white church to deal with its racism. But he tells me that the church has a different mission. It's the only church that Pitchfork Music Festival partners with, and that was their target market. That, he explains, is why he can't quote program multi-ethnicity into the church. At this point, my commitment to Christianity had been fading for a while. Every church left me more disillusioned than the last. I began to realize that I wasn't part of a faith tradition. I was part of an empire, and it didn't confront harmful systems. Because the Empire created those systems and benefits from them. But, like someone who just can't quit a bad relationship, I tried one last church. I just moved to New York City for journalism school, and I started attending an Episcopal church that I thought was fully inclusive. Then I learned that the church wasn't paying dues to the diocese. They were protesting the denomination's gay bishop. And that was it. I couldn't be complicit any longer. I needed to preserve my own faith. So I left institutional Christianity for good because my faith life matters more than the Christian label. Still, it broke my heart. So much of my life was wrapped up in Christianity. And then, just as I was leaving, I got pulled back in, but not as a believer. This time, it was as a journalist. During the 2008 election, I found myself with evangelicals in places like this. That's an Obama rally. My journalism professors kept assigning me election stories about evangelicals. At first, I felt like I was being pigeonholed and resisted a bit. But seeing evangelicals campaign for Obama made me wonder about the shifts in the broader evangelical world. So I started looking at longtime progressive evangelical leaders, but they were mostly powerful white men with progressive marketing that masked exclusive theology. But I kept digging. I loved looking at this world as an outsider and as a journalist. I was finally asking the hard questions. And those hard questions opened my eyes to the complexities of this ecosystem. There are so many fault lines and rivalries within. But that's been invisible for a long time because evangelicals have been portrayed as a monolith. And evangelicals themselves weren't always public about these rivalries. But I saw this fracturing on full display at a Christian conference in 2011. Picture a convention center with 2,000 mostly young white Christians. Flannel shirts, crisp polos, lots of tote bags. Of course, there's a rock band. (laughs) The two presentations that stood out to me the most were by keynote speakers with completely different styles and agendas. Gabe Lyons gets on stage and pitches his vision for the next generation. He wants Christians to be at the forefront of shaping cultural institutions. So, who struts onto stage? A smokin' hot Giorgio Armani model. The model's face is splashed across the jumbotrons. You know, I get it. He's a total hottie with a body. But... This moment reminds me of the buffet of churches I sampled. Yes, this was sexy and different in style, but not so much in substance. The second talk that stands out? Totally opposite approach. The speaker's visual aid is not a sexy model. It's a PowerPoint presentation. Womp womp. But hold on, the talk actually surprises me. Now, what I find, though, in a typical evangelical church is that there are more members of the NRA than there are members who are advocating for immigration reform. And the question I ask you then, is that a
1: biblical Christianity or is that a cultural
0: That's Sung Chang-Ra. He's talking about the ways that white Christian culture has damaged the church and communities of color. It's something I never expected to hear at a place like this. And I'm not the only one surprised. The audience perks up and some clap while others audibly scoff. And that's when I see it, the fracture. This was a turning point for me as a journalist. Both speakers represented two divergent strands of evangelicalism. At this point in my life, this was a revelation to me. When I was church shopping, the Christian hipster scene was all the rage. In my world, they had a powerful marketing presence. The evangelical justice movement didn't. So when I learned about them as a journalist, I got fired up. I found out, of course, that this movement has its own imperfections and rivalries. The evangelicals who focused on racial justice, gender equality, and LGBTQ rights have often competed against each other for a seat at the table. But today, that's coming undone especially in this new era as more believers embrace an intersectional and radically inclusive model. These movements floored me intellectually, and, if I'm honest, I felt a stirring in my spirit. And that made me wonder, if I had known about them earlier, would I have stayed Fast forward to 2014. It's been three years since my aha moment at that initial conference. I've been traveling the country interviewing faith leaders of a bunch of justice movements. And while not everyone modeled a radically inclusive approach, with each passing year, I've seen this idea gain traction. And so, as a pastor, on behalf of pastors, I want to apologize to you. I want to say I'm sorry for the way we've treated you. That's Danny Cortez. He's a Southern Baptist pastor, and he's apologizing to LGBTQ folks for his previous homophobia. Okay, loyal Kaleidoscope listeners, I know you've heard Danny's story in Episode 3, but stay with me. You'll hear a quick, familiar recap, but then I build to something new. Danny's narrative is important because it represents the kind of story we need to pay attention to. Far too often, American religious narratives get told through the lens of the most powerful— And then we end up with this huge blind spot. Just look at the way a few white men have owned the evangelical story. When the reality is people of color will soon be the majority of the church and other sideline groups are growing in influence. That change impacts everybody. So we need to listen. And that's what Kaleidoscope's after. And back to Danny, Filipino American pastor of a multi-ethnic church. Danny tells gay and lesbian congregants that their sexuality is a sin. His church even has funding to send them to reparative therapy, a discredited therapy that claims to make gay people straight. But then a close lesbian friend gives up on Danny's church and tells him to go educate himself. So he does a deep dive, but he keeps it top secret. He reads theology across the spectrum and homoerotic literature from ancient times. Danny joins a new gay friend on outings to queer cafes, clubs, and an HIV clinic. And then, after three years of research, he becomes LGBTQ affirming. Danny confides in his son, and his son comes out as gay. Danny's new beliefs could cost him his job, but he tells his church anyway. They eventually vote to keep him on as pastor. Since then, I've kept in touch with Danny,
1: You know, when you begin to rethink your theology and just your beliefs on one area of injustice and discrimination, you begin to see all the other layers of discrimination.
0: Danny's vision for radical inclusion keeps expanding. For instance, before, no women held leadership positions, but Church 2.0 made the majority of leaders women. Then, after the 2016 election, they built relationships with folks from a local mosque, the church committed to stand by their Muslim neighbors in this era of Islamophobia. In each chat with Danny, I remembered my church shopping days. Before his transformation, Danny could have easily been one of those pastors that turned me off. But then he changed, and his church supported him. Danny's story on its own impressed me. But it also represents changes in the broader evangelical world, and that blew me away. There are so many stories like Danny's. They're gold, but they go unheard. It's because the most privileged shape the social narrative, and that's corroding our society. Think about how Neil beat me up and called me a chink. He made me feel like there was something wrong with me. And at university, all the racial disrespect made students of color feel shitty. But there's nothing wrong with us. There's something wrong with the culture that normalizes that behavior. For any change to happen, those with power need to listen and recognize that their liberation is tied to ours. It's a lesson privileged folks need to understand, myself included. I'm a cis woman in a heterosexual relationship. Lots of privilege, lots of blind spots. But LGBTQ relationships and research taught me that society and I desperately need the leadership of this community. I'm gonna leave you with this. A moment that showed just that. Okay, it's 2013, I'm a reporter visiting a Christian college and I get invited to a secret party hosted by an underground queer student group. The moment I arrive, I know that this is the coolest party I've ever been to. (laughs) And listen, I've been to a few decent parties, even one with the cast of Gossip Girl, but this party is better. There's loud music, dancing, and storytelling. And the stories open my eyes to the lies about gender and sexuality that I've internalized. Like the unhealthy ways I measure myself against the impossible beauty standards set for women. Or the ways I haven't explored the spectrum of my own humanity. These students show me a wider world. It's like I don't realize my shackles until I see their freedom. Standing in the middle of the dance floor, I pause, and give myself a moment to take it all in. I see a celebration of humanity, with ethnicity, gender, and sexuality across the spectrum. Couples kiss, friends shimmy, and they are radiant. That's it for this special episode of Kaleidoscope. If you want to learn more about the people and stories mentioned, it's all chronicled in my book, Rescuing Jesus, How People of Color, Women, and Queer Christians Are Reclaiming Evangelicalism. And we've got tons of links in the show notes. Kaleidoscope is produced by Annie Newen with amazing support from co-founder Aaron James Brown. Special thanks to Waylon Wong, Andrew Yelly, Gabriel Colonin, and Josh Itzkowitz. I'm your host, Deborah John Lee. You can find out more about the show at kscopepod.com. Our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are all at Pod. Thanks to the BTS Center for funding Season 1. If you're into the show, please consider supporting us. Our Patreon account is Pod. Or use a Radio Public app, where we get some coins for each listen. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps, too. All right, I'll see you next episode. In the meantime... Let the world see you. When they do, they'll never be the same. Gossip Girl here, your one and only source into the scandalous lives of America's religious elite. And who am I? That's one secret I'll never tell. You know you love me, XOXO, Gossip Girl. Okay, maybe we shouldn't do this. This is kind of embarrassing.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.